Novichok 2 public appearance, just tourists they say. Defeated but not destroyed, a British general says don't write off IS. And the spy who really has come in from the cold while Putin watched on. Nobody had any idea that he would become as powerful and as dangerous as he has. Two Russian men named as suspects in the Salisbury poisoning have claimed on Russian TV they were simply tourists visiting Britain. In an interview with state-funded Russian channel RT, Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Boshirov say friends told them to see the city's cathedral. Sergei and Yulia Skripal were left critically ill after they were exposed to the nerve agent Novichok. They were interviewed by RT's editor-in-chief Margarita Simonyan. They're speaking through an interpreter. We are those who were shown to you in the pictures, Ruslan Bashirov and Alexander Petrov. Are those your real names? Yes, they are our real names. Even now when you're talking about it, to tell the truth, you look very nervous. What would you look like? When your life is turned upside down in a moment, in just one day you changed our lives. On the CCTV footage from London, you walk on those now famous coats and sneakers in Salisbury. Are these people you? Yeah, that's us. What were you doing there? Our friends had been suggesting for a long time that we visit this wonderful town. Salisbury, a wonderful town? Yes. There's the famous Salisbury Cathedral, famous not only in Europe, but in the whole world. It's famous for its 123-meter spire. It's famous for its clock, the one of the first ever created in the world that's still working. Well, listening to that with me are Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Clark, welcome. Are these two really the men that were seen going through the airport on CCTV and released by Number 10? Well, they certainly seem to be. Uh, I mean, Petrov and Boshirov, if they, we know those are not their real names, the intelligence services apparently do have their real names. But these are these are those two people. And I mean, like most of us, I, I heard evidence of this interview a couple of hours ago, and I haven't stopped laughing, to be honest. It really is comical. But it tells us something else, that the Russians are desperate to, to keep talking about this, um, because I think it shows a sign of guilt. If they were really didn't feel guilty, they just wouldn't bother. They just, they just ignore it. But they, the fact that they, keep, they have to keep this up and it gets ever more ridiculous actually is very indicative. Yeah, Christopher Lee, do you think the Russians are feeling guilty about this? Not at all. No, not at all. I think that um, I think President Putin is, is, in, is doing one of the big wind-ups. I mean, he's, he's playing a game here, and you can imagine Mrs uh, May will now be calling or has called in her people and say, hey, what's going on here? Are they, a, why are they doing this? There, what, what do we do after this? And really, are these two guys the ones they said they were? were? And why are they putting them up for, for exhibition like this? It, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mighty sort of mm. uh, two-finger uh, uh, to the whole of the Western organisations that sacked all the intelligence people. Michael Clark, Russia says it wants an apology over this. How do you think the UK should respond? 
Oh, we're doing exactly what we are doing. The point is, it doesn't matter what the Russians say. I mean, I mean, Chris is right in a sense that the Russians have been brazen about it, but the fact that they keep it going sort of indicates that they, I think they feel like they, they should do or they have to. But, the, but it doesn't really matter what the Russians think, because the fact is the rest of the world believes us. And this is a, a great tribute to the intelligence services. In something like this, where it's the British intelligence services saying, here is the evidence, here is what we know, and the Russians are saying lots of other things and lots of red herrings, the fact is the rest of the world says, Yes, if MI6 says that this is what it what is happening, we believe them, and that is actually a great tribute. It doesn't happen often, but in this particular case, it the, the rest of the world believes us. So it really doesn't matter that the Russians are going through these sort of pantomime hoops all the time. I tell you, the next stage, it's uh, there weren't just two of them. The next stage, it'll be six, and therefore we'll start putting up the names of the missing four. We haven't finished talking about this, but we'll come back to what we have for now, though. SITREP with Kate Still to come, why do we need a new counter-terrorism organisation when President Trump says IS is all but beaten? And spy stories from behind the Iron Curtain. BFBS SITREP. A British general has warned that nations need to stay committed to fighting Islamic State, despite Donald Trump's assertion that the terror group is essentially defeated. Major General Felix Gedney has just completed a year as deputy commander of the US-led coalition operation Inherent Resolve. He's told James Hurst the liberation phase of Iraq and Syria is nearing completion, but the much work is still needed in stabilisation to prevent an insurgency taking strong hold. Well, we're nearing the completion now of the liberation phase uh, of an operation that needs to liberate terrain from ISIS, Daesh, and then secure that terrain uh, and then to conduct the stabilisation. I mean, Donald Trump has said IS is essentially defeated. Is, is essentially defeated how you would characterise it? Well, I'd certainly say they are very close to being tactically, tactically defeated as a ground-holding force. Over the past years, we've seen remarkable success by uh, partner forces supported by the coalition in seizing terrain from ISIS. And that stage of the campaign is nearly over, but we have to then continue to do the security and the stabilisation effort that must follow. There are signs already that this has gone from being a war to an insurgency, as we've seen before. Is there not a great risk that, that, that this will the relatively quiet period we are having will, will fall apart? Well, um, we must learn from uh, previous campaigns. None of this is unexpected. Uh, and uh, we're developing Iraqi security forces uh, and local partner forces in Syria in order to be able to deal with the level of threat that will remain. We know that Daesh will continue to be a threat and we know they will attempt to conduct an insurgency. We have to ensure there are local forces that can deal with that. We also know that they are operating in Libya, they are growing in Afghanistan. Is the reality not that actually they've simply been displaced? No, I think most of, the, most of those ISIS that we had in Iraq and Syria, uh, we've dealt with. Uh, many of them have been killed or captured on the battlefield. Uh, there may be a few that have moved, but not many. But we are seeing them conducting terrorist operations, conducting strikes in Libya, in Afghanistan. Is, is, is this perhaps a beast where we've cut off one head and it's grown another, to, to, to use a, a metaphor? 
Um, no, I think we've uh, we've operated very effectively against them using partner forces in Iraq and Syria. Again, none of this is unexpected. Uh, this is going to be a, a long-term fight and Daesh will continue to be a threat uh, to the globe but also to this country for some time in the future. Looking forwards, how long does Britain need to continue its air operations that it's providing for the coalition? Well, let me start by saying you that the, the uh, Royal Air Force has done a remarkable job uh, supporting the campaign in Iraq and Syria. Uh, both in terms of the efficiency of, of the way they've delivered munitions and the bravery of the pilots that have done it, uh, and we should all be very proud of that. We need to continue that, and um, certainly at the moment we are uh, continuing to support the liberation battles, and then we'll need to make sure that we continue to operate in order to provide the security of the troops on the ground and to ensure we don't lose the gains that we've made. Is that months or years? Uh, I think um, I can't give you a time. Uh, I know that the, uh, the battle against ISIS is going to go on for some time, uh, and we need to remain committed to it. I expect we'll see a reduction in the numbers uh, of capabilities we require over the coming years, but I can't give you a, a time frame. That was Major General Felix Gedney talking to James Hurst there. Uh, Christopher Lee, let's talk specifically about the situation in Syria at the moment. We, we know that there is the bombing that has started, but not in earnest yet on Idlib. Uh, is this the end of the rebel resistance? Has Assad, is he on the brink of winning the war? Uh, this is a softening up. It's not the bombing. In fact, there's an immediate problem, which is not, I don't think, is yet resolved. Who is actually going to do the job on Idlib? It's a big job to do. 700,000 refugees have gone back in there. Uh, the Syrians are saying that we hit civilians, that way we take care of any ISIS. But who does? Iran is making noises which says it doesn't actually want to get in involved in this. The Russians can't get involved in this other than aircraft. Uh, the Syrians themselves can't handle it. And the Turks are really sort of leaning towards the rebels. Now, supposing they do it, supposing they do clean up uh, in their sense and the war in, in Syria is over, who then runs Syria? The Syrians can't do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be where they were in the first place uh, 11 years ago. Um, the Russians can't. Uh, the Iranians can't. So we're heading towards something which will be uh, a danger all the time, unlikely to sort of unfold all the time. Uh, it's a novel idea which the Iranians won't really want to get into, but it's been talked around uh, at a conference yesterday in Tehran. People were talking or they could see an uh, Iranian-Syrian unofficial federation now, I don't think that can happen, but it shows you what we're talking about, which it seems to be so mm -hmm. predictable, but in fact isn't. Professor Michael Clark, we heard about criticism this week at level from the Defence Select Committee about Britain's early reaction to the situation in Syria, uh, that if it had done more, fewer people might have died. What do you see now uh, as the imminent future in Syria? Yeah, it was the Foreign Affairs Committee who were uh, raising this point that uh, not to act can have as bad effects as to act. Um, and the fact is we've been edged out of anything that we could have done usefully in Syria other than some very marginal humanitarian aid really towards the edges. While we've pursued our um, anti-Islamic state agenda, which you know was a reasonable agenda to pursue, we are not part of the main game. What we were doing is really a sideshow. And the last good time for the British and the Americans and other Western powers to make a difference in Syria was really about 2012. And there was, a, there was an idea um, that David Richards, our CDS, and uh, David Petraeus in the United States, they put it to the State Department, Hillary Clinton, 
and she may or may not have put it to Obama, but there was, a, there was an idea, very, very sort of dangerous idea, but the only good game in town to actually contain the whole Syria issue um, and sort it out. Mm. But it would have involved some intervention. It was turned down, and from then on, we've just lost more and more influence. And in 2015, the Russians stepped in in a big way and essentially have taken it over. So now, do you, do you think, in- sorry to interrupt, do, do you think that the UK did make mistakes then in its policy over Syria? Oh, for sure. We've never, we've never had a proper policy towards this. I mean, we began by uh, cheering for the rebels against uh, Assad, then throwing ourselves in with this so-called moderate opposition, who are not very moderate and are losing. So we joined the wrong side. And even if our, the so-called moderate opposition would have won, we'd have found ourselves backing jihadists, who we were also bombing in another part of the of the field. So, I mean, we've been deeply inconsistent, like everybody else. Nobody is consistent in a civil war. And our policy has been uh, has gone from one failure to the next after about 2011, 2012. And what we're seeing now is the complete isolation of Western powers from whatever happens next in Syria. Now, in the long run, it might be better to be isolated from it because, as Christopher said, it's going to be a terrible mess. Mm. But it won't have anything to do with us in, in the way it works out eventually. But there's the other side of it, where we say being in isolating ourselves or, 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 or adopting policy. I mean, I don't think we've ever had a, a Middle East policy apart from the, the Second World War. I don't think we've had one since the 1920s and 1930s, which was carving up what, what a country should look like in creating Saudi Arabia. And there is part of the example. Um, we are supporting Saudi Arabia. We are supporting the Qataris. We're supporting countries that have an interest in supporting the so-called rebels because they're fighting a pet uh, a war by proxy against Iran. Now that is the complexity of it. Michael Clark, when, when you say that you know we never really had a, a policy on this, who do you blame for that? Oh, it's just a, it's a lack of leadership in the sense that it, it, it's this is not the most important issue. Um, on our agenda. So it only got a certain amount of political time. And it coincided with a period in the United States where leadership was very lacking. I mean, the Bush administration, followed by Obama, who said all the right things, but really backed away when it came to major commitments. So, you know, Britain, even if Britain were more determined, would have been find, found, would have found itself with a partner in the United States, which has been completely irresolute since the mid-1990s. So, you know, you, you can point the finger at any number of individuals, but actually it's a collective failure of Western leadership to take Middle East events seriously um, since the beginning of the Arab uprising in 2011. Why you don't take it seriously is because then you don't have to put two troops on the ground. And that is the crux of all policy in the Middle East when it comes to the military. Now, gentlemen, stay with us because experts gathered in London this week for a conference to discuss the rise in homegrown jihadist terrorism. Kojit UK, or the Combating Jihadist Terrorism in the UK organisation, want to start a conversation on both the methods of dealing with extremism but also on its causes. Uh, Professor Clark, this is your idea and you are the chairman of Kojit. Why did you set it up? Because every time there was a, a, a terrorist attack, and we saw five of them last year, the reaction was always the same. It was the same pick points being made again and again. And Theresa May, after the London Bridge attack, said, we must have some conversations, even difficult and embarrassing conversations, to try to get to the root of our problems in this respect. But it, those conversations have never really taken place. Mm. And although, although the government has now created a commission for studying extremism, that commission is, is necessarily going rather slowly, and it'll take it time to get, get up and running running and so some of us three or four of us decided let's try and create a, a quick immediate national conversation this year 
Um, and so yesterday's conference was the launching of the national conversation on the causes of jihadist terrorism. Not, not, we're not talking about right-wing extremism or Irish Republican terrorism. We're, we're only talking about the jihadist terrorism threat to Britain. Mm. It's one part of the process. And how and how the conversation started last night? How did it go? Did you move the conversation forward? I think so. Yeah, we had um, half a million people who uh, checked into what we were doing uh, online. We had uh, 300,000 who listened to some of the conference. The conference went on for a day and a half, but 300,000 people in, by webcast were listening to it in one way or another. And we've begun uh, a big outreach program with other organisations and with the, the the public. So during the next year, I hope we'll see a number of public meetings, but more than that, a, a sort of a, a social media conversation that will uh, grow and grow I hope and it'll be misunderstood and there'll be lots of nasty elements of it um, but I hope that we can move things forward a bit to have a grown-up conversation amongst all of our communities not just our Muslim communities but all of our communities in Britain who've got to take ownership of the problem we have because although our counter-terrorism in Britain is very good we're very good at policing it and at detecting plots and doing something about it the situation beneath that, the, the situation where extremism uh, is, is, is gender, is engendered, is getting worse. And people, my friends, who, who are very close within the Muslim communities, they say it's, it's, it's more difficult than you think it is. The situation underlying these communities amongst the, the youth of many of our communities is worse than you people think. So what do you think at Kojit UK will do that hasn't been done before? We'll try to uh, come up with some fresh ideas or refreshed ideas. There are many good ideas around, some of which are, are worth revisiting. But also, we're looking to fill some of the research gaps. So there's lots of lots of things that people think they know, but it turns out there's no good evidence one way or another for them. So we're going to try to, you know, look afresh at where the gaps are. And we know that uh, the Home Office and the government they are acutely aware that they that they create policies and they just don't have any empirical basis. They have a they they have a, a sense. Well, this must. Be true let's do something about it but if they're if they're challenged very often they can't give you facts and figures which back up some of the things that they're saying so we're going to be looking for some of the research gaps that we think we might fill because we've got a reasonable amount of cash to be able to uh, commission good research which will come out during next year mike I'm, i've often thought that um in counter-terrorism is that there's far too much for government to do um, in its involvement in it, and it can't cope with counter-terrorism or, or new ideas because there isn't a system actually to make, create them. So therefore, fixing counter-terrorism is not a formal law-creating function. The core of counter-terrorism is a perplexion of societies, isn't it? And that is doable if you get at society rather than try to get at government to do it. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's got to be bottom up. It's got to work within the within our, all of our communities. Um, and one of the problems that we've had, I mean, the, the elements of government policy which have not worked very well, like the prevent agenda, you know, the the, the agenda to try to prevent radicalization in the first place, that's been so top down. It's been so uh, associated with government and police work, you know, policemen going into schools or policemen talking to teachers. And although there's some good reasons for doing that, it's actually created a very bad um, atmosphere. And a lot of people oppose prevent because they just think it's government snooping or it's the police trying to get neighbours to inform on each other. 
but prevent does a lot of good things but it's got to be as a refashioned so that it feels and genuinely is from the bottom up it's got to be something that communities themselves want to do and so that's the, the idea of Kojic UK is not to be working we're not working with the government we're not working top down we are going to try to work bottom up mm. and during the next year you're not um, so you're not working with the government what, what is the government saying about it how, how much interest are they showing in this Privately, they've said that they're glad that we're doing it. We're keeping an arm's length relationship. I mean, all of the, the finance for this is entirely private. And if the Home Office offered us money, we wouldn't take it. Mm. You know, we must be seen as separate and different from the Home Office. So we're keeping them informed because mm. they, they want to know. They, they're glad that we're doing it. But they understand that this has got to be seen as independent and transparent. We have no agenda. And I keep saying to people, if this is a miserable failure, it finishes toward the end of next year. And if it's a howling success, it finishes towards the end of next year. It's a one-off shot to make a difference to the, the, the attempt to create a proper grown-up national conversation about the problem of doing something about jihadist terrorism in the UK. So, so one-off shot, you say. What's your next diary date for Kojit UK? Uh, the next diary date is uh, is our big wash-up meeting. The, the conferences we've had the last uh, two, three days have been pretty exhausting. So our, our next date is the, is the big wash-up meeting we have on Monday. Uh, and then we uh, start our, a, a, a series of uh, meetings that we'll be having in uh, Manchester and the North West and Birmingham and some other meetings in Birmingham, uh, in uh, around London uh, next year. Um, and we'll be working with other organisations like uh, the Institute for Democracy uh, and the How To um, Academy, and we'll be actually putting some of our ideas into organisations that can benefit from them as well. There's no example in world world politics where terrorism can be fixed by government, and that's why this stands a chance because of this bottom-up approach. Okay, Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. A former SAS soldier has claimed that he foiled a plot to assassinate President Gorbachev. Tom Shaw, not his real name, has written a book about his time as a spy behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany, where a certain KGB agent called Vladimir Putin was working the same patch. He's been speaking to Laura Macon-Isherwood. You, it seems, uncovered a plot to assassinate Gorbachev. Gorbachev. How did you realise that that was about to happen? I had a radio that I was servicing. It was my, my contact with the West. It was the only contact I had. I was confronted by two guys who were armed, who eventually, I, I actually knew one of them, the other one I didn't know. Um, but I managed to turn the tables on them. And, uh, and like everything, you know, you need to know, you need the answers, why and where and what are you doing and everything else. Um, and like everybody else, if you're scared and frightened you're going to be killed, then you'll come up with the answers that are needed. And these guys live in a world that was, was, was really brutal. So they had no illusions that you know, they could be killed at any time. Um, so they, they told me what I wanted to know and just blurted it out. And what did you do with that information then? I sat and thought about it for a long time because that is one of the decisions that wasn't you know, it didn't come quickly, it wasn't readily available. You had to think about the implications. You know, if you went one way, um, what, would, what would the outcome be? You know, if you, if you allowed them to do it, what would the outcome be? Well, the outcome, if you allowed them to do it, was that the Russians would have just rolled out the tanks across East Germany and, and probably the war would still be up. You know, 
you can't say for certain, but you know, there's a good chance that, and and the reason the Russians or the, or the Russians that wanted rid of him at the time was was because of Glasnost. You know, it's their world was falling apart at a, at a hell of a rate, and so, so what you, did you do? You left to make your own decisions, I'm afraid. <laughs> and what was your decision? My decision was to stop it, but I'm not going to tell you because you need to read the book. <laughs> that would be the ultimate spoiler. But it, need, it needed to be stopped. I, I thought it needed to be stopped. You also came across the very well-known now Vladimir Putin. In yeah. what yeah. situation was that and who he, was he at the time? At the time he was a major. Now, um, he was head of the KGB for Saxony, which is the area that covers uh, Leipzig and Dresden and, and, and around there, Sweet Cow. East Germany was very much under the ha under the, the boot of the Stasi. You know, they're, they're probably the most uh, efficient secret police um, organization that's ever walked the earth. But he was always there. If you were at a, a rally in Leipzig, he was there. He would turn up at at raids on safe houses and things like this. Never actually got involved, but he was always there and. And he tended to become an itch you couldn't scratch. You know, it's like having fleas. You know, you knew they were there, you just couldn't get them. On the other side of it, nobody had any idea that he would become as powerful and as dangerous as he has. And it's probably not PC to turn around and call somebody like him dangerous, but there's no other word for it, really. Did you follow his career and his life, or did he just. I did, as a matter of fact, yeah. but. But it wasn't until he, he was voted um, into politics in Russia that, you know, the name rang a bell again and, and you start to watch it. But, uh, yeah, he's... Um, I've got to be diplomatic here, haven't I? He's, um, he's not somebody you, spend, you, you tend to want to spend a lot of time with, put it that way. You know, um, he's, a, he's a dangerous man. And I'm not, not in politics, so I can say that. So he's a dangerous man. So 30 years on, you're now telling your story. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, I think it's an important story. And, and you, you know, I'm 66 now. And none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. And, uh, and without me to tell it, it's, yeah, it's going to be history. It's going to be something that's not known. You know, so I, I think it needs telling. But you've chosen to use a pseudonym, Tom Shaw. Why is it still important for you to have that anonymity? Well, it's it's thirty years on, but you know, it, it's not only this episode. It's it's other stuff I was involved in. You know, um, what we call across the water in Northern Ireland and things like this. You know, you still very much live under a shadow, and uh, and I've got to think about my wife and my kids, grandkids, and things like this. A lot of terrorists, and even as we've seen lately on the news, a lot of political organisations can be quite nasty when they put their mind to it, you know, and a lot of them have got very long memories. That was Tom Shaw speaking about his book Pilgrim Spy. Well, Christopher, those were affairs back in 1989. Bringing us right up to date, Russia today conducting one of its biggest military exercises since the Cold War. Well, stuck. Vostok 18. Vostok, Russian for East.
we had one earlier, Zapad West, and it's what they do every year, an exercise in Siberia, for example. Mm. The importance of this is 300,000 supposedly 300,000 people taking part 1,000 You say supposedly uh, advisedly don't you? But it's a great opportunity I tell you a great opportunity for western uh, satellite intelligence and human intelligence as well because part of it they're watching whether the Russians can do it and part of the job is moving say 300,000 or 200,000 or whatever it is from the west to the east. That takes a lot of coordination. Do your aeroplanes that are going to take people when they refuel? Do they get to refueling cycles on time? Uh, what happens if something breaks down? What happens if there's a diversionary airfield which cannot take an overload, etc.? And then what they do in terms of firing and target acquisition. So it's a big thing to watch. But the important thing here is that the Chinese are taking part. Yeah, how important is that? Is it significant? It's insignificant in as much as they are taking part. I mean, what they're doing militarily doesn't actually matter. Mm. But what is interesting now is but it's not necessarily a big sign that they're ally, big allies now, is it? You've got to be pretty close to, 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 you know, we take part to an exercise, joint exercise in the coalition of the winning or NATO or whatever. The most important thing is that if you look on a grander scale, um, for example, there's a very, very big ec uh, economics uh, conference taking place between the Chinese and the Russians at this very time. And that is significant. It's meant to be significant. It shows the conversations that they take. The Russians, for example, are fourth in the amount of uh, uh, imports that the Chinese have. This is all new. These are the two superpowers that have replaced America. It's as simple as that. And here we are seeing a demonstration of that power. Christopher, thank you. And thank you to all of our guests this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'll speak to you same time next week. Bye-bye. Hello, Kate Chabot here again. Since SIPREP was recorded late this afternoon, some questions have been raised about Tom Shaw's claims made in the programme today. We'll look into them. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.